First John we're reading, and chapter 3, John's first letter, chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 10 through to the end of the chapter. First letter of John, chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, <coughs> nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. May God bless his word to us this evening. Yeah. Continuing in... First John, as I do intermittently when it's me and usually and tonight, just to tell you from, you know, it should be on your sheets, uh, it's really verses 16 to 20 of First John 3 want to look at. Uh, last time, uh, from verses 10 to 15, uh, John is speaking of, of true and false believers and he's giving tests of life. One is righteousness, which ends really in verse 10, though he comes back to it. Another is this test of love, and then in chapter 4 you have the theological test, the test of, of, of trusting in the real Lord Jesus and not a counterfeit. And last time in verses 10 to 15, I, I preached that in the morning a few weeks ago, and it was meant to be a challenge, a challenge, that's what God is doing here, that's why it's meant to be a, a challenge to false professors, to those who think they're Christians but don't love their brothers. So you have... Uh, whoever does not practice righteousness, verse 10, is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Verse 14, we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And we move on tonight uh, to a challenge and then some comfort, to a challenge to Christians. How much really, how real is our love 
to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then, having considered that challenge and probably been brought quite low by it, the comfort uh, of that comes in verses 19 and 20, and indeed runs on, uh, but there's more challenge again, and we look at those verses, God willing, in a few weeks. True Christian love, then, the challenge. True Christian love is active. This is verses 16 to 18. What is Christian love? What are its qualities? How do we distinguish it from the counterfeit, which could mislead and destroy the soul? What does it mean to say we love our brothers? Well, we start with Christ. By this we know love. Here is a definition. John is going to give another one of these. He's going to speak of the love of God. In this is love, chapter 4, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is one definition, that's what love is. Here is another one, which ties in with it, of course. That's the love of God, here is the love of Christ. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. That's what we've been singing of. That's what we're singing of in our first hymn to some extent, certainly in our second and third hymns and will be in the last one. This is where we start. Christ's love which is perfect. He laid down his life for us. I lay down my life for the sheep, he says, John 10 and verse 15. John in chapter 2 and verse 2 of this letter, we read of Christ, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The one who bore the wrath of God as he hung on that cross. We're reading part of Psalm 22, weren't we? And it's not just the sufferings of the body, it's the sufferings of the soul. And we read of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us in suffering the wrath of God that we deserve and that we certainly can't uh, bear. And it's we, we've been singing, why is it? I was trying to think of the hymn that most epitomises this, and that's the one I came up with. You might think of a better one. But, but it says, my song is love unknown, my Saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. A, a saving love, a transforming love, and then, oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? I, I could, as the hymn says, here might I stay and sing. I could preach uh, on the love of Christ. Uh, but John is bringing this in not as an aside, but he's bringing it in as a starting place for what he wants to say. Uh, here is this love that is vast as the ocean. Here is this love that is unknown. And then we say, well, what should we do then? If we're meant to love, we can't die for someone else's sins. But John goes on, he says, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Uh, it's a, a truism, of course, that anyone who hears that preaching hasn't done so. But it doesn't mean, does it, we've got, we should be thinking, I'm a pretty poor Christian, I haven't died yet for someone else. No, he's saying, that's, that's, that's love. If we define Christ's love, laying down his life for us, what is our love? It's got to go as far as that if needed. It's got to be that we would lay down our lives for our brothers. Many examples you have in, in church history, of, uh, including in modern times, of people who have sacrificed themselves uh, in order to save others. People who have stood in the way of, of bullets so that others can escape. 
And we don't know, do we? We think, well, I, I hope if I ever had to do that, if people burst in through the door of this church and study shooting people, I hope I would be the one who would stand up and let others get out. But we don't know. We, we do know God gives grace for extra, extraordinary grace for extraordinary times. But the point is, we're not in that position at the moment. But what it's saying here to us here, what God is saying through his word, isn't there? There's no, to, to be no limit on our actions for one another regarding costliness. That, that's the, the point about Christ's death, isn't it? How much it cost him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering and the anguish of his soul, which he endured to deliver us, that is love. He did not say, I'll love these people a bit or even a lot. He loved us utterly and completely and effectively. He didn't stop loving us. And so we can learn from Christ's love that it's to be without limit, our love for our brothers. We can also learn from Christ's love a couple of other things, can't we, that go with that. It was a love of deliberate choice and not a choice in the spur of the moment. Oh, I'll, I'll die for them. This is from eternity, the purpose, the lamb who was slain from before the creation of the world. His purpose to come into this world and die to redeem sinners. He chose to come. A body you have prepared for me. I come to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And it was a love where he did not expect to get anything back. We know that the joy of Christ, and we find this as hard to understand as his love, don't we? As incomprehensible as his love. The joy of Christ in his redeemed, in his bride. But we still, if we live for all the ages of eternity, as we shall, we shall not pay back what Christ has done. We can respond to it, but it's not a repayment. We are not paying back a debt. There is no way that we can recompense Christ for dying for us. And so our love for others has to be not only where there is no limit regarding its costliness, but a, a love of deliberate choice, deliberate actions, not expecting anything back. What does it look like? Well, John then brings it down to here and now. But whoever has this world's goods, verse 17, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So he says, the sort of love I'm talking about when you haven't got to lay down your life for your brothers is this. You're rich and your brother is poor. So you give him money. Or you give him food. Or you give him whatever you can. Maybe you give him a home. And sometimes, though this is not on the direct point of this line of, of teaching, sometimes our love is, well, I, I can't, we can't give someone anything but if you haven't got anything but you can perhaps give your brother or your sister your time you can give your words john's going to say not only words but it doesn't mean not words you can be there for people you can help and john says 
But he's not saying do it, is he? Though he is, he says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, it's a challenge, isn't it? I said this first point is a challenge. He says, here you are and you close your heart. You have a calloused heart you have, because you are selfish. He's talking about deliberate decisions and I think I want to make the point here that this is, this is the case. We're going to come on we will be talking about our convictions that we haven't loved our brothers and sisters enough. But, but John is, is bringing it to the very concrete here. God is, is saying to us, don't, as you're sitting here hearing these words, don't immediately think of all the things I might have done and didn't, perhaps, or, or, or my failings. In an abstract sense, he's talking about very real failings of love. He's saying, deliberate. I could have helped, and I knew I could have helped, and I knew I should have helped, and I didn't. Now, that might come home to us. But the point is that he's talking, even in these sense, he's saying, if you are the sort of person who's always got a reason for not doing what you can do for someone else, how is God's love in you? How can you say that you love that person with the sort of love which God has for you? How can you say you love God if you don't love his child? Chapter 4 and verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. And you remember the Lord Jesus Christ in those devastating words uh, which will be pronounced. In Matthew 25 and verse 45, and he warns people they will be pronounced, that there they are standing before the throne on the left hand and saying, when did we see you in need and we didn't do anything for you? And he says he will answer them. He will answer them. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Here is the person who's saying, oh Lord, if only we'd seen you in need, we would have helped you. And he says, you wouldn't, as you claim, have done it for me because you didn't do it for me. Because you didn't do it for my brothers. Therefore, you didn't do it for me. Profession without action shows a false profession. And that's what John goes on to here in verse 18. And by this, uh, sorry, my little children. You see, he is talking to Christians. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And though this is still part of the challenge, even here, that that comfort is coming in, isn't it? My little children. It's an exhortation. It's a plea. It's a plea from God through the apostle who wrote the words down, not through, uh, through me, but only as a mouthpiece, through the preacher, but I'm not saying this, God is saying this. Little children, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed or in truth. There are two contrasts, aren't there? To love in deed and not just in word. To do for someone, not just say, I love you. Words are cheap. 
And the second contrast is in truth, uh, not in tongue. In other words, to actually do things, not just talk about doing so, not just promise, I will do something for you, and then you don't. How hurtful that is. We all know we should be very careful when we promise things, but we all know that we might, in the course of ordinary conversation, say to someone, I will do something for you, and then something happens and we're unable to and we, we feel mortified. Well, we should do. But it might be completely... I was going, really going to give you a lift tomorrow to the hospital, but my car was broken down. We, I can't. Well, I can't. Yes, OK. But not... Oh, I've decided not to get out of bed. You know, let us be realistic in what we say we will do and let us not boast that we've done things when we haven't. And subtly you can do that, not in actual words, but by giving the impression that you're always the person who will be there for others and whenever you need it, you're not there for others. And John is exhorting us. God is exhorting us. My little children, Christ is saying to us, let us not love in word or in tongue, but or in deed or in truth. And the church, but indeed. And in truth, and the church should be like this. And the Lord Jesus, of course, in those very familiar words, said this to us, didn't he? In John 13 and verse 35, where he talks of the new commandment that we have, verse 34, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's exactly the argument we've got here. Here is Christ's love, have the same love, in the same way as I have loved you. Love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you have love for one another. What is the evidence that we follow Christ? We love each other as Christ has loved us completely, without limit in of doing what we can do and not what we can't do, deliberately doing so. And the challenge always comes to us, doesn't it? Are we doing this? comes to each one of us. comes to us as a church. And I'm not going to try even answer the question about yourself or even about us as a whole because we're going to come on in a moment to say it's only God who really knows what's going on in our hearts. I think in this church there is a lot of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And I'm sure there is this true love, this agape love, this costly love, this self-sacrificing love, and probably there's more of it than any of us will know because if we can, we do our, our, our deeds in secret. But there's always more. And that's the challenge. But it is a challenge to Christians. It's not meant to be a complete condemnation. It's a challenge. That's how it's framed. But we can all go away if I stop there feeling this high and perhaps some need to go away feeling this high. But not all. And therefore, and secondly, I, I, want, I felt I had to come on and say this also tonight. Verse 19 and verse 20. Here, here is the comfort. And by this we know, or perhaps better shall know, that we are of the truth, by our love, that is, and shall assure our hearts before us, for if our heart condemns us. We have to go on to that to see what, what it, John is talking about. He's saying, if we do this, if we love 
Not just in word or tongue, but in deed or truth. And I think also because they're linked together, he's going back to verse 10, the children of God are the children of the devil. The children of the devil are those who do not practice righteousness, nor is he who does not love his brother. If we love in deed and truth and practice righteousness, we can reassure our heart, each one of us can reassure our heart, when it condemns us for our particular sins and failings. I think that's what is being said here. When our heart justly condemns us. Now notice it's the heart that's condemning. It's not God that's condemning. Our heart condemns us. We know we should have done something for someone and we didn't. We know we have said a word to someone that we should have, shouldn't have said and we have. We know we have failed in love. We, we know that it was certainly in our power to love our brother or our sister and we didn't. And our heart says, you're wrong, aren't you? You're guilty. That's a sin. And John talks, amazingly, about reassuring our hearts. What does he mean? Well, if you have sinned and failed in love, and your heart condemns you, God is bringing that home to you. And you need to repent. And you need to confess. But there's something else that goes on then, doesn't there? Or often can go on. And that is we begin to doubt our salvation. Am I really a Christian if I've sinned in this way? Now, if you start entertaining doubts, am I really a Christian, every time you remember a sin you've committed, you will end up in the pit of despair, which is not where God wants you to be. We must remember this. That though God will convict us of our sins as Christians, it is the devil who is trying to persuade us when we really are Christians that we're not. That is not the work of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of bondage. No, it is Satan who will say, are you really a believer? God will say, look what you've done. Turn back, confess. Repent, Satan will say, but you're not really a Christian if you're that bad, are you? He causes us to doubt our salvation, not God. God doesn't lie. If you are a Christian, God is not going to try to persuade you you're not. Whatever work he's doing in your soul, that is not God. And we need to be assured in our hearts. This great doctrine of assurance, which I've touched on before, but... Uh, the, the best verse on it is Romans 8 and verse 16, where we have the two witnesses. Paul says this, uh, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he said in the verse before, is the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There is one witness, that I am a believer. How do I know I'm a believer? Because I know God, who is the God, who is the eternal God. I know he is my heavenly father. That is one evidence. I, I didn't know him as, as that, and, and I've come to know God. To know God is eternal life, the witness of the Spirit. But Paul speaks of a second witness. Everything has to have two witnesses. The witness of our spirit, what does that mean? It means the witness that we know that we are different from what we were. 
that we know that though we often fail, we are changed people. We were not once like we now are. We may have been loving and generous, but we weren't loving and generous to believers because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is much more to the witness of our spirit than love, but this is where we bring it home to here. We look and we say, look at the people around us. Do I love these people? Why do I love them? I love them because they are my family. In Christ we are one body. And I, I can look at some and say I'd never, I might get on fine with them, but I'd never love them in this, this way. I never have that motive of just wanting to help them when they need, have need. Except God has put a change in me. Made a change in me. I am born again of the Spirit. I am a child of God. I am, as John simply says sometimes, of God. It's an evidence of the new birth. It's an evidence of being in the truth. And John says, when you get to the point that your heart condemns you and you want to assure our heart, your heart before him that you are of the truth, that you are of the truth, that's what he said in, in chapter uh, in chapter 2 and verse 21, no lie is of the truth, he said in chapter 2 and verse uh, 5, whoever keeps his word, or verse 4, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. So here we are and our hearts are condemning us uh, and we need to know that we are of the truth and we need to be assured Our hearts need to be assured before him, before Christ. And how do we do that? Well, John goes on and he says, and remember also, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He knows the truth. When your heart only sees one side of the issue, at the point where you see your sin of failure, in this case in love, but any sin, but your failure of sin in love, And you see that, and it blocks out from your view of yourself any thought that you actually love God. And you can't see your love of God, and you can't see your love of Christ, and you can't see your love of your brothers. But at that point, where you can't see those things because of your sin, God still knows your heart. And he knows that you are his. He knows all things perfectly. He knows truly when we don't. He knows our heart when we don't know it. We often don't know our hearts. We misread our hearts. God never misreads our hearts. So he doesn't condemn us. Our hearts are condemning us. What is God doing to these little children to whom John is speaking? How is he looking upon us? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the thing is, God doesn't condemn us for our real sins when our hearts do, for our real sins. Sometimes you can feel guilty when you shouldn't, but for our real sins, when our hearts condemn us, you you have sinned. God does not condemn us because he has already forgiven us in Christ. Christ 
has laid down his life for us. And therefore, following on from this, I want to say a couple of things really, uh, following on, studying these two verses. It is essential, and we find it hard to do, but it is essential to get each sin into proportion. I'm not trying to minimise sin. I'm trying to say that if you get your sins out of proportion, that's where you start condemning yourself and falling off into despair. We are not to look through at our sins through the wrong end of a telescope and make them small, but we are not to look at them through the right end of the microscope and make them very big. In the sense that, yes, sin is sin and each sin condemns, if not covered by the blood of Christ. But we have to remember we are forgiven. We are not Pelagians. We are not Roman Catholics who go, say they will go into and out of a state of grace and, and I've committed this sin and until I can get to a priest and get absolved, I, if I die now, I'll go to hell. We are not like that. God knows our hearts. And when we have sinned, if we do what John has already told us, chapter 1 and verse 9, and we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us, that's in the heart surely, from all unrighteousness. We can know the sense of his forgiveness, we can know the assurance of his love and his salvation when we confess our sins. And I think we need to say one more thing on these verses before we move on to a conclusion. And that is this. Don't get depressed when you don't do what you can't do. That might sound obvious, but it's too common. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ, that marvellous testimony he gave of that woman who anointed him at Bethany just before his death. And she poured out the very costly oil of spikenard, broke the flask, poured it on his head. People were, were grumbling about it. How much it cost? You could have given it to the poor. Jesus said, no, this is the right thing for her to do at the time. She has done what she could. You can't get a better commendation than that. You have done what you could. You've not done what you can't. We can see a brother or sister in all sorts of need, physical need, financial need, spiritual need, whatever need, and we can wish we could do something and we know we can't. Don't condemn yourself for not doing what you can't do. You see, there is the comfort here, isn't there, as well as the challenge. There needs to be the comfort as well as the challenge. Because we look at ourselves... And we just get it wrong. We get it wrong on one side. Well, and we convince ourselves that we are doing everything we can for everybody else when we're not. And we get it wrong on the other side. And we convince ourselves that we're not doing things when, yes, we, 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 we can't do them. We get it wrong in our hearts. We get it wrong in terms of, of, of what we should and shouldn't have done and what does that mean about our salvation and we get... And Satan comes in and he has a field day if we let him. 
and we are not to. This is this word is John speaks in simple words, doesn't he? Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, laid down His life for us. If we don't love our brothers at all, how how how, how are we truly Christians? Let's do it in word, in deed and truth, and let's know when our, when our hearts condemn us that we are of the truth because here we are we don't always love our brothers and sisters as we should but we do love our brothers and sisters and we do do these things and we say I wouldn't have done that if if God's spirit wasn't within me and he hadn't given me new life in Christ righteousness and truth are these twin tests based on verse 10 whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. The third test, as I said before, is going to come in chapter 4, which we might get to at some point. Um, But what you can't do, we have to take this passage because it goes together. That verse hinges it, doesn't it? The righteousness before, the love afterwards. What we must not do is choose one. We can't say, well, I'll live a life of righteousness, but I, but I won't worry about love. Or I'll live a life of love, life of love and helpful to others, but I won't worry about righteousness. The Pharisees were the ones who said, weren't they, I will live a life uh, where I, I was trying to live righteously before God and, and I couldn't care less what's happened to anyone else, really. And if I'm going to give money away, it's only so that God will reward me. But there's an awful lot, isn't there, in this world of people who say, oh, I'm a Christian, look at all the good I do for other people. And, and yet when it comes to it, they, they are those who are upholding and promoting sin. There is no either or, it's a both and, because it's the result of the one Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of Truth, who brings love and righteousness into our soul. We need tonight then, not to walk away. Not to walk away challenged, but unchanged. But we need to walk away also, knowing that whatever we have done, though our sins condemn us, as we say, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. And we need to go away, resolving by God's grace to love our brothers and knowing that we can do so because we are his children.